Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Enter the Dragon. A martial artist agrees to spy on a reclusive crime lord using his invitation to a tournament there as cover. Okay, so today we are visiting a very classic martial arts film that has actually already been mentioned in this series tangentially <laughs> and so for that we need a guest david who is our guest today our guest from christmas tide ohio and straight off the top of my headlines it's aj generos aj how are you it's me hi i'm good how are you guys we're so happy you're here aj thank you so much for being here thank you for having me i'm very excited Oh, we're, we're just, we're excited to talk this movie. So what has been your experience with this film? I hadn't seen it before. I watched the trailer once you guys told me that I would be doing this episode. And I realized I've never seen a movie trailer before 1980. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a very specific period okay, of time for okay, movie okay. trailers. This is a lie. This is totally a lie. Because you've seen Kiss Me Kate. I've never watched the trailer for it. Trailers are a different experience. The trailers are a different experience. Yes. I did not know that the trailers for earlier movies were just like, we're going to summarize this whole movie and then you will pay to watch it in longer form. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> okay. And David, your experience with this film? I've never seen a Bruce Lee movie the whole way through. I've seen scenes. I've seen bits and pieces but I've never sat down and watched a full Bruce Lee film. And I'm ashamed of that fact because holy freaking shit. The shit. He, he truly is. Was. Still is. Still is. He still continues amazing. to be. He continues to be amazing. He has a huge legacy. I think the thing about this movie that is hard to grapple with now is just how important it is to martial arts cinema, mm -hmm. period. Oh, sure. And action movies, period. Mm -hmm. Like, this movie was a game changer in terms of having audiences be interested in cinema that came from the East, that came from China, Hong Kong, and Asia, and popular cinema at that. Sure. I mean, Japan had made inroads with, with directors like Kurosawa, but it was very art house style films. This is the first major action movie to come from outside the United States to make this big a splash. I believe that. That, might, that makes sense to me. So I had seen the TV edit version of this movie. And it's definitely one I know my brother, who was big into Taekwondo. That was a big deal. So like there were a lot of martial arts movies going around my house for a time. So I know I've seen a lot of this movie. But until this series, I hadn't really sat down and like given it my full attention. Bruce Lee's fucking hot. Holy yeah. shit. He oh my god, yes. Hot. How many abs does that boy have? I think there's 10. Like, I think I saw 10. There's so many abs. And like, not even like abs. Like, I, okay, like abs aside, like abs are great. Let's talk about his arms. Okay, yes. we're just fully objectifying Bruce Lee. He's very attractive, like just truly. Really, like we'll totally. get to the substance of his acting later. Just, we'll get there, because because it's there. There is so much substance, but like, oh my god, <laughs> I 
And I do really like, and I, every time I kept seeing him perform, especially when he took off his shirt, I just kept thinking of ballet dancers, honestly, because they have very similar builds. They're, they're so lean and so muscular. It, it's insane. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah. Those forearms just pop. <laughs> like, they look fine. And then when they're in action, they're insane. Uh-huh. It's the exact opposite of what we think of when we think action movie star. Like, oh. when we think action movie star, we think Schwarzenegger, Stallone, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And now we've got this. This is a guy who is completely and utterly lean, muscular, effortless, graceful. And graceful in a way that, I mean, even martial arts stars who came after him, none of them could ever do exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, I mean, he came up with his own entire form of martial arts. Oh, really? Okay. He performs a style of martial arts called Jeet Kune Do, which the philosophy that Lee's character talks about in the movie. A good martial artist does not become tense, but ready. Not thinking, yet not dreaming. Ready for whatever may come. When the opponent expands, I contract. When he contracts, I expand. And when there is an opportunity, I do not hit. It hits all by itself. That was the entire point. Moving the least amount possible to get the maximum effect. I love that. That is so cool. I had never heard of that. Like, I I remember him trying to explain that, especially when he was sparring with the student at the monastery. Yeah. But I guess, like, the principles didn't really sink in until you just, like, okay. This movie is dense. There's so much packed into this movie. And in a lot of ways, like, he is trying to jumpstart his philosophy inside of what really feels like a black exploitation movie. Um, but like he is relating a whole lot of stuff inside of this movie. And one of the other big things about it, which generally we all feel pretty positive about this movie. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. It's also low rent as hell. And that's because the budget for this movie was $850,000. What? Okay, what? (laughs) Please say those numbers again. The budget for this film in 1973 or 1972 when it was filmed was $850,000. That feels like Dr. No Money. In today's money, that equates to a $5 million budget. That's no money. No money. David, that number's too low. (laughs) Now, it made, in its initial run, $90 million. That is the equivalent today of $500 million in gross. That's so money. <laughs> it is one of the highest percentage grossing movies ever made. It profited by 18 times? <laughs> yeah. When you look at inflation, it profited 100 times its budget. Holy crap. Okay, now. I just keep comparing it to other films whose budgets we've talked about. Because <laughs> that's the only way I can, pick, can compare to it. Now, that's I, insane. I want to point out. There's a couple of reasons for this. One was that they heavily marketed it. The marketing budget in the U.S. for this movie was more than the budget of the film itself. They spent about a million dollars budgeting it. That makes sense. And part of the reason for that, and one of the other reasons this movie took off like wildfire, was that three weeks prior to its release, Bruce Lee died suddenly and mysteriously. Okay. So this is his last film. This is his quote-unquote, legacy film. Exactly. We're going to pump the hell out of this. And Bruce Lee was a known figure 
in Hollywood by this sure. point. He'd already played Cato on both Batman and the Green Hornet. He had already done a few movies that had some buzz and notoriety. So Bruce Lee was a known celebrity quantity, and now this was going to be the hyped film. Mm -hmm. When you have that, all of that together, the notoriety, plus the fact that it's a really interesting, unique, and good film, Mm -hmm. it just took off like gangbusters. But even then, the numbers are still ridiculous for this movie. Yeah, no, that's bonkers, that return. So now that you know how much this movie was made for, wow! how do you feel about how it was made? Very well, actually. I, I mean, it certainly feels like a 70s movie. Yeah. Definitely felt low budget. I'm not going to lie, because you definitely knew it was a lower budget there. There's almost that grainy, almost porn feel to it. Oh, yeah. And the only time it really felt that way to me was with all of in the scene with the mirrors and it's really the mirrors that's the only real mm-hmm. but you know that like they pulled that from this like oh mirrors all over the wall that sound that sounds really cool but i'll say i watched that scene again you don't see the camera in any of those I, mirrors oh anytime i'm watching a movie and i see a wall of mirrors i am watching so fucking i'm like where's the cameraman where's the cut i'm watching so hard Where's real boy? Let's go. Come on. <laughs> but no, they no. they got it at the right angles and they put so the mirrors perfect. in the right angles. Yeah, I it's so well, it's so well done, especially all that stuff in the, the Fisherman's Village. Yeah. The, I don't know what you call it. That's amazing. You mean Flashback Central? <laughs> oh, totally. Like, that's beautiful. It's beautifully shot. And it's just because so this was all made in Hong Kong. This was made mm-hmm. in co-production with Raymond Chow who we would know Raymond Chow from earlier in the series with Rebel in the Bronx. Okay. Because Raymond Chow was the main producer on almost all of Jackie Chan's movies in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. He is a giant producer there. Part of the issue was Bruce didn't have the money to get this made in America, but he knew he could get it in Hong Kong. So all of this was done with the help and labor of the studios in Hong Kong to get this made. And so all those people on boats and stuff, those are just people... That's why I was like, it's it's kind of fun to watch these kids be like, oh, who's that? They're just watching. And they're like pointing and looking. And it's because there's random people with cameras and boats floating down the river. That adds a whole new element to it that I had. Like, I really thought it was just extras and whatnot. But like now knowing that it's like genuine excitement, that like adds a whole new layer to it. And there were a ton of extras, but they were all put into the temple. All of the incidental extras were just people that they filmed. I love that, though. Yes. Because that's what, like, it gives it so much life. And it gives it authenticity. Oh, sure. Like, that is the other thing that this movie does that sets it apart from a lot of its counterparts of the time is that it feels like it's being seen through the lens and the voice of a Chinese-American person, Mm -hmm. of somebody who actually exists within that culture and understands that culture. And so that's, that's a huge thing. And one thing I'm going to say, as I go along, I'm going to delineate because Bruce Lee's character in this movie is named Lee. So it gets real confusing. (laughs) So if I'm talking about the actor, I will say Bruce. If I'm talking about the character, I will say Lee. All right. He's totally going to mess that up. (laughs) Of course I will. Uh, (laughs) I believe in you, David. You can do it. Bruce saw this as far more than an action film. He wanted to express the beauty of Chinese culture as a whole. And so to do this, 
He's got the visions of the Shaolin Temple, the wide spaces of the palace, the harbor, the shops, and refusing to spend any time doing exposition. We go to that party, and there's no explanation for what's going on. Mm -hmm. I love that. Exactly. It just is. And it's so huge because there are action movies now that take so much pains to try to explain every little detail about what's going on in a scene. Yeah, or you have that one character who's like, my job is to explain to the white dude here exactly that, oh, so what you're seeing now is this part of this thing. Yeah. They didn't even bother. No. Which I, I do love. That party is wild and awesome. <laughs> awesome. I will say that at first, like, there were a lot of things that I felt like I was getting frustrated because there were no explanations to, like, go with it. But the more it happened, the more I felt like relieved, like, oh, I don't need to pay that much attention. This just is. Sure. It's just environment and it's and it's dressing and it's building up this identity. And part of all that wildness surrounding them, too, is to be a counterpoint to Lee being this incredibly stoic, unresponsive character to all of the pageantry around him. Mm-hmm. Like he does not give a shit at all. Including when the women walk in and he just shakes like he's sly and he gets what's going on and he's not ignorant of it. But he's also like, that's not what I'm here for. It's like, I will not be distracted. (laughs) Yes, these ladies are attractive, but I will not be distracted. Of course. Do not try me. I am here on business. I am. This is business time. We will have other business later when my business is done. Yeah. Bruce also did have some fights with the studio, including the title. Warner Brothers wanted to call the movie Hans Island. Excuse me? No. (laughs) Because they thought international audiences, and not necessarily the U.S., they would be confused by not having any explanation in the title of what was going on. But, like, Hans Island means nothing. Exactly. Because, like, you just said Hans Island. Like, who the fuck's Han? (laughs) <laughs> on the southern Isles? like and then i just wanted to make that of uh, the southern isles joke. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what I there's definitely to say. a haunt of the southern isles joke somewhere in my notes <laughs> absolutely again it comes back to that show don't tell totally we don't need we can we don't need that to get a feeling for what this movie is enter the dragon is specifically trying to tell you this is a badass movie about it's- chinese martial arts well it's it's ominous and also, it's like, who's the dragon? Because they show you three people who could potentially be the dragon. Or Han could be the dragon. Well, he could be the dragon. Who knows? Or the dragon could be his island. So you're entering the dragon. We just don't know. Don't know. It's a <laughs> metaphor, people. <laughs> it's up to you, friends. It's open for interpretation, but it's not. There were two other alternate titles, Blood and Steel, which doesn't really make sense mm. for this movie. That sounds like mm, a cop no. movie, which, boo. And the only thing I guess with that, the Metal Claws, you know? Eh. For one that actually would work expositionally, The Deadly Three. Ooh. That one kind of works, because we've got these three main characters who are coming to fight in this tournament. Okay. Okay. If the three of them work together in a partnership war yeah like (laughs) this is one of my favorite movies as a kid the three ninjas oh well but think about it too three ninjas is this movie just made for kids 
love Three Ninjas. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I have not. Okay, I have not seen it in 30 years, so I know it's probably racist as shit. And moreover, just dumb. And dumb. But I just remember really liking this kid because, again, martial arts house, enjoying that concept of the kid saving the day. Cool. Yeah. But if, if the three dudes had interacted more, that title would make more sense for me. Yeah. But since they don't, they basically just stare each other down and are angry at each other. That's the one choice for me that I was like, I kind of wish you had decided to actually team these three up at some point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, why are we spending that much time featuring? A little bit, yeah. Because if if this is Bruce Lee's movie, just make it Bruce Lee. Like, have him have to fight these guys. But don't necessarily need or, them to be co-leads. Or have them have them be his sidekicks. Yeah. And in this case, like, on the other side, I don't hate the idea of having these two other guys with their own backstories where they all have to figure out how to team up against this bad guy. Sure. But at some point, they undercut the legs from that. Sure. Yeah. Like, that's the one fault I have for this movie. Well, like. It, it's almost like there could have been some connective tissue. That, yeah. I where, just like, don't know. Where Lee's Lee's the driving force of the story. You know what I'm going to blame for that? Studio? The writing. Oh, okay. Fair. That's fair. So. I'm here for that. A writer for this film is Michael Allen with an I. This is his first screenplay. After this, he wrote Truck Turner, Flash Gordon in 1980, and the story for I'll Be Home for Christmas with Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Oh, how precious. What do we think of the writing of this movie? Um, it's clunky. Yeah. It's clunky for sure. It feels ingenuine. Yeah. You're getting what you pay for from this writer? Okay, I don't want to harp on dialogue because we're dealing with uh, language translations and dubbing and and so yeah. I don't, I don't want to harp on dialogue. But story-wise, it feels like there's some connective tissue that either wasn't written or was cut. I'm thinking it's probably it wasn't written. <laughs> yeah. And, and because I just don't, I feel like there's this whole thing that it's, okay, Lee is this amazing martial arts guy, but he's also a spy. Yeah. But then he has to go over here to fight, but then he's also fighting with these other these other two dudes who somehow are also involved in this um, kumite thing. So it's Bloodsport, <laughs> which Bloodsport's fucking awesome. And that, yeah, that's yeah. the same dude. Fucking love Bloodsport. We've talked about it on this podcast before. And we totally yelled kumite like a hundred times. Of course we did. <laughs> Bolo is there. Bolo's there. <laughs> my best wins from this podcast. So excited. <laughs> There's just so much going on and it really could have been, hey, Lee, there's some shit going on here with this bad dude. He's got an island. You're really good at martial arts and you're a spy. We're going to send you to this competition to infiltrate this competition to get on the island. Hey, these other two guys who work for other countries or other agencies are also going to be infiltrating the competition. They're going to be your friends over there. Go. Bye. See you later. Have fun. Win. The end. On the other hand, I like the fact that the other two guys are criminals and aren't affiliated. I like I like the idea more that Lee gets there, realizes he needs allies, mm-hmm. and pulls these guys in. Okay, well, one of them could have been could be a criminal, and one of them could have been an ally that he's know. supposed to like meet up with. Whatever, but that could have been their backstory 
that would have been more streamlined than what we got. They've clearly tried to favor environment and mood over exposition. Sure. And in doing that, they hacked out some stuff that like we probably needed to fully understand what the hell was going on. Because <laughs> yeah. otherwise we're just like, I guess this is what's going to happen now. Okay. Oh, we're going to have a tournament and fight these guys. Oh, his sister got killed. Oh, they're imprisoning and committing every crime in the known universe. And now there's going to be a battle in the temple. Like, it's just like, roll with it, I guess. <laughs> like, it, this is what's happening. I'm not sure if this is a side effect of me not having paid close enough attention. I feel like I didn't get enough of a reason for, like, the other two guys to be there. Same. Like, I don't, I don't know why they got their invitation. I don't know if they have beef with Hans. Sa like, literally same. I was just kind of like, um, I know those guys are important because they're in the movie and they fight and that's it. Like, I really didn't, I didn't know why we cared. I mean, the vibe I got with their flashbacks was Roper is there because he's a longtime con artist and somebody is trying to come kill him for unpaid debts. Okay. So he magically gets this invitation because he's a martial arts expert. Okay. And flees. And then Williams shot a cop. And rightfully okay. so. Okay, that's okay. Now I'm remembering that flashback. So that's the context of that scene. But remember watching that scene, I'm just like, good for you, man. <laughs> because this is 2020. Man, that, that whole scene was like, whoo! That happened. hit a nerve. And I'm just like, good for you, man. I don't care what you did. Good for you. I just remember like seeing those scenes and being like, but why does that mean they get a pass to the fun kung fu fight? <laughs> it's I mean, that's a fair question. They do it a little bit in William's scene because we see him coming out of the dojo. Sure. Yeah. Roper, we never see. We have no clue that he understands martial arts. No. And I think that's the one biggest thing. If we saw them and knew that they were that skilled at martial arts... It would make more sense. Then even if we never get an explanation why, at least we know, oh, well, they're really good at this. And also they need to get the fuck out of wherever they are. So cool. I don't know. There's there's a lot. I like that they did not give us cultural exposition. True. Great. Good choice because it was awesome to just see it and experience it. But we needed a little story exposition. Just a little. Which yeah. is a different thing. Different thing. Well, also, I'm not sure if this has something to do with writing, but can we talk about the fact that there was a scene where there was like, My Ling said, no, we need to be quiet here. And then they proceeded to talk at normal speaking volume. I mean, dubs, man. You got to overdub vocals and there's only so much you can do. Well, like, okay, so didn't they plan to just dub the whole movie anyways? That is correct. And that so actually, the fun part about that is that is not a factor of language barriers per se, though that is a contributing factor. Sure. But the biggest reason was it was cheaper to film without sound. Yeah, I was about to say, because usually when they do that, doesn't that mean they they film without any sound? Exactly. They didn't have any soundtrack underneath, so then they just go in and overdub their lines. And that's why they did it. Oh. So. And then for the actors that could not speak English, they brought in other actors. And they did bring in, like, the actor who plays Han is a very well-known Hong Kong actor, was a friend of Bruce Lee's father. Oh, okay. And he could not overdub his lines. So they brought in another guy out of Hong Kong, also a very good actor, but had the, the ability, ability to do, to do those English dubs. Yep. And they had him do the overdubbing. 
the reason I say that I think the problem is the writing is you get what you pay for with this. Fair. Bruce had concerns about this character. Fair. And rightfully so. He was worried that Americans in the West wouldn't accept a Chinese hero. And he was worried China wouldn't accept the type of approach he was taking. He was making a very 70s exploitation style film. Are they going to be okay with that? Yeah. Alan did not give a shit about this, apparently. Probably because he wasn't being paid very much. He made flippant remarks every time Bruce would bring this up, saying, don't worry, there's no budget for this movie, and it's not like it's a fine piece of literature. Oh, he didn't care. So Bruce tried to keep calm, just brush it off as, you know what, we're just going to deal with it, I'll deal with the visuals, I will do my best to make this character. Then Alan doubled the fuck down by making tons of tiny alterations to the scripts, including adding as many R's to the dialogue as he could because Bruce had trouble pronouncing words with R's in Uh. Uh-huh. That's yeah. That's, that is some <laughs> racist shit. You get what you pay for. And in this case, they got a dude who just writes bullshit for a living. How much is the uh, human decency package? <laughs> <laughs> We're still trying to price that out in 2020 America. <gasps> Too many feelings. So Bruce catches on to this and then refused to work with him for the rest of the film Fair. and demanded a new script. The producers did what they had to do because they're like, we don't have the money. We can't, we can't so they it. tried to smooth it over and they told Alan, Go the fuck away for a few weeks. Fair. Lay low. Yeah. Let him chill because this is incredibly important to him. Mm -hmm. But at one point, Bruce ran into Alan on the streets of Hong Kong and lost his shit. Oh, yeah. It's like, we ain't work, bitch. <laughs> he was That's right. Fight. Pissed. I could murder you now. He could. He could. That's the scariest thing. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So bad. Yeah, it's. Uh, I want to see that fight play out. Let's go, hands right on the bat. He didn't fight, but I believe he unloaded very much on him, and rightfully fucking so. Oh, deserved. That's some. Oh. Come through. Let's go. <laughs> uh -uh. Two other fun stories about the writing. The producers intentionally wanted to tell a story without guns, and in this case, Bruce is involved with the production. Sure. So Alan created Hans Island so firearms would be completely removed. The whole thing was set up so that you wouldn't need firearms to defend it. Okay, I like that. And the finished screenplay contains no details of the action sequences. They were simply written as, quote, they will be choreographed by Mr. Bruce Lee, unquote. That makes sense to me. <laughs> well, he was in most of them, so why not? You just don't, you don't write choreographed scenes for Bruce Lee. You just say, you're going to do this. I hope he got a fight choreography fee as part of it. He was a producer. He got a shit ton of money. He's good. Yeah, no, it's cool. <laughs> like, no, like, he definitely made his money on this one. Get, get that extra credit on it, though. <laughs> so, yeah, writing is bad for obvious reasons. It's so bad. Ugh. Now, on the other hand, directing. Okay. Our director is Robert Klaus, and this guy lives in the world of exploitation cinema. Okay. Before this, he directed Darker Than Amber and Dreams of Glass. After this, Black Belt Jones, The Ultimate Warrior, Game of Death, which was Bruce Lee's posthumous last film. It was released in 1978, okay. but was being filmed right around the same time as this. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. The London Connection, The Kids Who Knew Too Much, The Pilot for the Master, better known as Part 1 of Master Ninja from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Hey. Jim Cotta, the gymnastics martial arts film, and Ironheart. I'm not familiar with any of those films. <laughs> yeah, no, same here. Jim Cotta is really well known in the realm of bad movies. It's like a like, classically bad movie. I've heard you say that name before, but I, I don't know. What it's it literally a guy gets on a pommel horse and starts kicking people. Like, it's literally a gymnastics martial arts action film. Well, tune me the fuck in. Let's go. <laughs> You thought you thought it was just like, oh, well, they just pair some. No, no, no. Like he gets on fucking gym equipment and starts hitting people. I want yeah. to see this fool on the high bar. Let's go. Yeah, I want it. I'll show you clips later. It's magic. Yes, Diana has checked out of the podcast. You, you'll be all right there. It's like Sharknado, the martial arts film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine a man on a pommel horse. <laughs> Hey, this this is my brain. Man on a pommel horse and zombies just coming at him and he's just kicking them away <laughs> repeatedly over and over again. It's just on a continuous loop. Yeah, imagine that, but it's guys in ninjas costumes. And okay. you've pretty much got the movie. Yeah. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> the other thing that, that Robert Klaus also did was he wrote Bruce Lee the biography off of which the television movie Dragon the Bruce Lee story was based. If you've okay. ever had a chance to watch oh. that. Which is a very good television movie. I've not seen that, but I think we've talked about it before. I've seen I've seen quite a bit of it. That's like the one thing Bruce Lee related I know I've seen. That's very good. Robert Klaus was chosen after Bruce saw the movie Darker Than Amber, in which a choreographed fight between the stars turned into an actual fight between the two that they kept the camera on. And so Bruce, I think, went, this guy's not going to cut if we get into it. And I want that. That's good. (laughs) All right. Okay. That's intense. When Klaus arrived in Hong Kong, Bruce insisted they go to a theater to see one of Bruce's movies. He said he wanted Klaus to get a feel for the atmosphere in the theater. But really, it was because Klaus was not aware of Bruce's reputation in Hong Kong. And Bruce was trying to pull a power move, trying to psych himself up. Mm. Oh. I mean, that's not bad. It's like, I need you to know how important I am on my turf. A little bit of espionage. I like it. That's totally fair, though. It's just like, he's like, you don't think I'm a big deal, but over, like, in this place, I am. Come on to my street, see who I am. Right. What do we think of the directing in this movie? I think that they made, like, a lot of very powerful choices. I feel like there are some places where it might have been a little lacking, but the places where it hit very well, it succeeded in doing that. You think those slow-mo sequences are gonna be eye rolly, mm-hmm. and they're not. They're actually really like, oh, because you see him like stomp on the guy, mm-hmm. and like you've seen the clip out of context a lot mm-hmm. to where you don't think it's gonna have that power. And then when he does it, you're like, he just fucking killed a dude. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like, shit. <laughs> the word I would use for the direct for directing is restrained. Economical, for okay. sure. Very economical out of necessity. Yeah. But also, it's very restrained. I feel like nowadays, with this type of movie and this type of performer, you just want to do all these overcomplicated angles and just really, like, examine the movements too much. And it's really like, let me just put my camera here a little bit. 
And in a couple instances, let me make the environment match what's going to happen. Like the Hall of Mirrors, which really highlight, like was so, that was just like a perfect combination of production and performance and directing and cinematography. But just being like, I'm going to set my camera here and let my performer do what he's good at and I'm going to capture it. And I it, it, like that takes restraint. I think he clearly got that this is a movie that Bruce Lee had been trying to make his entire career and like had been building towards this vision the entire time. So he knew all I need to do is make my thing get the fuck out of the way. Like uh-huh. I need to get the camera in the right spot and just get through this production. My, my job is to make him look good. Exactly. That's it. And he did it. And tell the story the best way I can with whatever we got to deal with. And, you know, he lives in that world of just making stuff on a tight budget, which is all you needed. You had all the charisma in your star. You just live off of that. And it's very rare to see a movie where you're like, the director doesn't have to be that great. The star is that good. But this is one of those movies. Yeah. 500 different workers built the set from scratch without power tools. What the fuck? Some of those temple sets were built out of chicken wire and mud. What is this, Apocalypse Now? Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) The steel bars of the prison cells were actually shaved down pieces of scrap wood because the labor to make the wood was cheaper than round steel bar stock. I'm cool with that. Yeah, it is efficient. And and, and I want to say that that might be some exploitation of workers there. Yeah. I mean, fair. The, yeah. There's that. There's certainly that. I just need to throw that out there. But the inventiveness of thinking. Sure. The, it's actually cheaper for us just to make these and whittle them down than to just buy steel. Yeah. That's ingenious. Let's make it look like steel instead of it being steel. Yes. Yeah. Like this reminds me so much of the sets on Dr. No. Oh my gosh. Fun because they had no money. And like, damn, that looks like you're telling me that's just wallpaper. Cool. Those sets, and you're like, some of this is chicken wire and mud. Like what? this is just thrown together. The courtyards where they are training were modified tennis courts. In fact, if you look at them, you can see some of them have lines painted in the ground. I'm literally going back in and watching this tonight to try and catch <laughs> <No>! this. <laughs> oh, yeah. And each morning, the sound stages had to get cleared of stray dogs and squatters spending the night on the couches or the floor of the sets because they didn't have money to secure it. Like, what were they gonna do? I'm physically ejecting from the podcast. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, More fun stuff. The director stated that their director of photography arrived in Hong Kong to find the equipment in near disrepair and none of the lenses he was used to working with. So he had no idea how he was going to like film this shit. Wow. Yikes, Roni. So he took on the job himself of hiring equipment from another supplier, which pissed off the Hong Kong producers. And Raymond Chow with the additional cost. They're like, why are you spending all this money? I was like, I can't make the movie. I don't, I don't know how to use this. I'm sorry. What's like happening? That's... I'm like, every camera is broken and I have no lenses. What? Yeah. So the entire film was shot with two cameras and three lenses. Wow. All those angles, oh all the different setups, mm. two cameras, three lenses. Damn. Hey, what the fuck? (laughs) You know. The second cameraman, Charles Lowe, had additional problems with the lights. All the light setups they had were completely rusted out. So they had to change the lighting setups overnight every single time. 
they actually wound up having to reshoot entire scenes to make up for lighting issues that kept cropping up because they had to roll with whatever natural lighting they had. Okay. They needed a bigger budget. <laughs> they needed like another mill. Like $2 million total. This movie, no problems. But also, I will say, that speaks to the talent of the crew they Absolutely. had on this movie. Whether or not they were like the best in the business, they were good enough at their jobs to know what they were looking at, to see it in the camera and go, no, we got to redo this because the lighting's not right. It's not going to look right when you see it here. Like, okay, I'm all for giving people good tools to work with in order to do good work. 100%. But there's something to be said for having to get scrappy with scrappy tools because you learn some shit that otherwise you would never learn. And then when your fancy tools break, you know how to get by. Yep. There's some shit that you otherwise would never know how to do. See, I fall on the other, like, I fall on the reverse of that thing where I'm like, it is so amazing that you figured out how to do all this stuff with less than what would be recommended. Get yourself some nice tools, though. <laughs> oh, no, to- like, no, like, I, fi- I see value in both. Like, there's sometimes you really do just need to pay the money and get the nice shit. But there are other times where I'm like, there's some value in being a little scrappy. Like, money doesn't always fix your problems. Yeah. And money can actually impede your creativity. If You, you have to know how to use the money you have wisely. Absolutely. And that's the biggest thing. Yeah. yeah. And that's the credit to these guys. Absolutely. They saw what they had available and said, okay, we'll make it work. We'll and they did. There is, of course, an extended cut of this film. Because, of course, the American studios made cuts from the Cantonese and Mandarin versions. Hell yeah, they did. They do it every fucking time. And every fucking time, I'm like, show me that version. I want to see it, yeah. Show me the forbidden film. (laughs) The extended versions were released in 1998 in English because they were taken from the Mandarin and Cantonese releases. But some of the scenes in those had never been dubbed for English. Okay. Uh So obviously... Bruce is not around to be able to dub his scenes. John Little, his biographer, substituted in Bruce's place. Okay. And in the scene with Roy Chow, the Shaolin abbot, Chow was actually still alive at the time and was able to do his own overdub for the re-released version. Hmm. So that's pretty cool. All right. Also, before we go, there is one secondary director for this film. Bruce Lee directed the Shaolin monastery fight at the beginning of the film. Oh, that's awesome. That sequence was filmed at his request personally after principal photography had concluded. Oh. He wanted that fight included as well. Mm, Interesting. So. I think it's well done. Bruce Bruce gets a little directing credit here too. And that finally brings us to our cast and the man we're really here to talk about, Bruce Lee playing the character of Lee. Mm -hmm. He's of course... The pinnacle of martial arts cinema. He's actually been in movies since he was like a baby. He was in a bunch of Hong Kong cinema very early on in his life. His first major American credit is Kato in The Green Hornet and TV and Batman, the television series. Then in Marlowe, The Big Boss, Fist of Fury, and The Way of the Dragon. After this, his posthumous film Game of Death was released with footage shot in 1972. What do we think? Of Bruce Lee in this film. Well, we already talked about how attractive he is. (laughs) Very much so. He's very good at that. He is so fucking chill. He is so 
Like, I don't want to say reserved. He's so self-assured. He he gives a lot without doing much. Mm-hmm. Sure. Which which is his entire philosophy of life. Uh-huh. I think to that cobra scene, like that one moment where he throws the cobra into the room and just sits there and puts his hand, his chin on his hand <laughs> and funny. waits like, while this cobra attacks these guys. And he's just like, good grief. I had to wait for these I guys love to come that out. So I, that much. so funny. And you're like, fucking, you're such a badass. Like, you find this tiresome. <laughs> this is tiresome to you. This is a cakewalk for him. Like, in any other movie, in any other situation with any other actor, this would be like harrowing. We'd be looking at a watch, and he's just like, oh, I'm hungry. <laughs> This is what I need to get at the grocery store later. Like, like, oh man, like he's just like, ugh. I said it 20 minutes into this movie. He is the epitome of fucking cool. You look up cool in the dictionary and what it's supposed to mean, it's Bruce fucking Lee. Yeah. Like this whole movie. And it is a vibe that I haven't seen from like anybody. People play stoic, people play wild, people play, you know normal guy scared a little bit mm-hmm. but you never see just this epitome of badass cool like this he's he's just he's great <laughs> I, I can't find the right word for him he's just here to have a good time and i'm living for it uh-huh i'm sad that we don't get there's not more of him yeah uh more more of this this type of work from him yeah there's five great movies but that, that was it yeah this is only one of two films, Marlowe being the other, where Bruce uses his natural voice in the dubbing. During the filming, Bruce didn't show up to work for several days because of his nerves. Okay. The pressure was so intense that he felt it so acutely that he was like, I, I can't even show up right now. Panic attacks are a real thing. Makes sense considering what it meant to him. Oh, yeah. Sure. After the filming of the first take of his first scene, he developed a facial tick. That they could see in the close-up shots. Oh, yeah. Okay. And Klaus looked at everybody and basically got them to say nothing to him. Mm -hmm. Let him go, sit for a little while, and they improvised some other shots and angles for coverage. They came back after lunch, the tick was gone, and it never reappeared. That's a good director. This is why this guy wrote his biography. Yeah, that's a director who knows, like, my actor needs a minute. Like, he doesn't need me to mess with him. No. He knows what's up. Yeah. Like, they need a minute, and now we're good. Like, yeah, that's a good director. And Klaus served as the middleman because the studios, Warner Brothers and and Golden Harvest, were both haranguing the movie to say, like, you have to film. There's a strict timeline. You have the money. You've got to get this done. And it's no money, but for them, it's such a huge freaking deal. But they... They basically told Klaus, you can't stall. And so Klaus improvised around him. Bruce fought constantly with producer Raymond Chow at one point storming off set. Bruce said he felt like Chow was asserting himself as the major creative force of the film. And that Bruce wasn't being kept in the loop of partnership decisions because this was a split partnership. Okay. Now, Raymond Chow's take was that I'm here to handle the business. Your job is to deal with the acting and creative process. So you don't need to know what's going on day-to-day operations-wise. I mean, there's a part of that that's true. And there's a part of that that's like, this is his baby. 
Like, don't be a dick. Yeah. Bruce did suffer some injuries. While they shot O'Hara's death scene, Bob Wall, the martial artist, mistimed the thrust of the broken bottle because they did not have fake glass. Oh, no. Oh, 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 no. Oh, whoopsie. So Bruce did get cut in that scene. Oh, shit. Yikes. And Bruce performed the cobra tap 10 times. What? He only got bit one time. Now, the cobra had its venom removed. Okay. So all he had to deal with was the cobra bite. But still, they did that take 10 different times. That's too many times. That's also one of the most badass things I've ever seen in a movie. Period. I'm gonna slap you. Just like, whack. And you're like, you did what with a deadly venomous snake? No, thank you. It's bonkers. We move on to John Saxon as Roper. If there is such a thing as B-movie royalty, he would be in the discussion. (laughs) Because he is a legend of crappy run movies. Before this, he appears in 1954's A Star is Born, The Reluctant Debutante, The Ravagers, Death of a Gunfighter, Housemate of Dawn, and Joe Kidd. After this... All throughout his career, he shows up in a bunch of Italian B-movies for some reason. Okay. Don't know why. But he's also in 1974's Black Christmas, Mitchell, another Mystery Science Theater 3000 classic, Radon and Tebby, Fast Company, The Electric Horseman, Beyond Evil, Running Scared, Wrong is Right, The Big Score, A Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984. He's like the small town detective guy. Oh, that movie we watched. Yeah. And reappears in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. That's a good one. He had a run on Falcon Crest, Maximum Force, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Wes Craven's New Nightmare as himself, and he's in From Dusk Till Dawn. New Nightmare slaps. You don't know that yet, but New Nightmare (laughs) slaps. That movie fucked me up, but it slaps. (laughs) What do we think of John Saxon in this movie? That dude thinks he has a really big dick (laughs) sure for sure right i mean like that dude thinks his shit don't stink i mean okay he's the epitome of big dick energy with like no payoff oh when john saxon arrived on set he thought he was and acted as if he was the star of the film that explains everything that happens on screen with because at the time he was about as equitable to Bruce. That's racist. <laughs> so the white man, the white man showed up and assumed he was the star of the fucking movie. That's racist. It's pretty fucking racist. Oh, that's really fucking- that, that one sure is racism. I mean, it's also just being a big headed asshole. That's still racist. Yeah, no. That big dick <laughs> energy, I think, is just him thinking this is his starring role. And not realizing at all that he is very much a second-tier character. Um, if it weren't for the racism aspect, that would be hilarious. (laughs) It's still pretty fucking funny. (laughs) There's a a part of me that's like, I'm so sad for you, but you're a privileged white dude, so I feel no shame. Yeah. I, I I don't feel bad for you. Yeah. At all. For the longest time in the movie, I thought he was, like, meant to be playing an asshole. And, like, I was like, oh, he's doing a really good job of that. I thought no. he was going to be a bad guy for, like, half the movie. He, he thought it was a biopic of himself. Ugh. But Bruce specifically trained the actresses playing Han's daughters to overpower him in the fight scene. To make him look terrible. 
good. That's that's really that's a passive aggressive move that I can really. Support. Bruce Lee doesn't get mad. He gets even. He gets fucking even. Oh, that's like the best shade ever. <laughs> I'm here for this. That's what that's what Bruce does. I'm so here for this. The biggest reason that he got the role was he did have a black belt in karate at the time. That's cool. So that's a good reason for him to be in the that, movie. That's how he at got At the time, cast. he did lose it. <laughs> <laughs> it got lost in the wash. Sure. He got demoted for racism. Now we do have a who could have been better. Anyone. Rod Taylor, who starred in Darker Than Amber, the movie that Bruce Lee sure. saw, was also up for the role. You would know Rod Taylor as the voice of Pongo in 101 Dalmatians, 1960s The Time Machine, The Birds, and he played Winston Churchill in Inglorious Bastards. I love this. Now, there's a reason they didn't choose him. He was significantly taller than Bruce Lee. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. I get that. No, like, I understand. Like Especially having Jim Kelly, who is very incredibly tall. Yeah. And around that same time, he's making Game of Death with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's like a good foot and a half taller than him. Sure. So it was like, I can't have both these guys be towering over me. Yeah. Nah. Like, that, that, I still need to be imposing too. Everyone knows I'm a martial arts god. Yeah. I need to show a physical threat without having to do martial arts instantly. The one thing I'll give credit for is Saxon does have a roguish quality to him. That plays well for that character. It's just that the smarminess never goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Even but- when he's confronted with like the really stark reality of what's going on, he's still fucking smug as hell. And I was like, dude, you should be scared shitless right now. Like, please show me that you are fucking scared of this guy because he's a monster. Like, bro, he did just kill your friend. Like, show some sort of fear. Yeah, something. You're supposed to care. Ugh. And that leaves us finally with our other main actor, Jim Kelly, playing Williams. This is his first major film role. After this, he appears in Black Belt Jones, Three the Hard Way, Golden Needles, Take a Hard Ride, Hot Potato, Black Samurai, Death Dimension, The Tattoo Connection, and One Down, Two to Go. What do we think of Jim Kelly in this movie? I wanted so much more. I did. I really, I love that scene where he's arriving in Hong Kong on the boat. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah, I'm awesome. I'm really cool. Mm-hmm. Not only that, it's both I'm really cool and also this is so fascinating. Like This is the I'm in a different world. Like, it's so cool. And he feels so ca- he's very charismatic. Mm-hmm. I wanted so much more of him. If we could have gotten rid of Roper and had Williams and Lee, that could have been the buddy martial arts mm-hmm. film. I could have been here for that. Originally, Roper was supposed to be killed by Han. And Lee and Williams were going to fight Han's army. John Saxon's agent got involved because Saxon was pissed and got the roles reversed. Oh, fuck that. Fuck that shit right there. That is so goddamn racist. Hi, this is more racism in this movie. Uh Uh-huh. I know it's going to get more racist when we talk about it, but it's super fucking racist. (laughs) This, okay. Yeah, no, this is just the tip of the raceberg. Here's the thing, though. This movie succeeds in spite of all of that. I know. Mm-hmm. And it does so because... The white man loses, which is good. Yeah, the white man loses. <laughs> and also, at the helm of all of this is an amazing, amazing 
Asian American dude. Oh, 100%. Yes. With more charisma than everyone on screen combined. And there's some really good acting in this movie from some actors. But like, he's got more charisma than all of them together. Yeah. I'm just like, there's just so much racism. Come on, people. Mm -hmm. I'm disappointed in all of you. No, it should have been Leanne Williams all day long. Oh, that would have been so Because those two were the far more compelling characters. Absolutely. And Williams feels like he has a moral code. Roper doesn't. Exactly. Roper's just there to punch people and have sex. Like, And I don't have a problem with having that character there. And then you getting to be like, well, he's an anti-hero, but at least he's a little charming. I like him. And like, then he's killed. And you're ha- like, whoa, shit. Killed, like saving somebody or like taking the fall. Like they could have had him die in a like, quote unquote, honorable way. Well, it's so easy because he, he turns down Han. He's like, no, I'm not going to join your crime syndicate. I have my limits. And then he's dead? Sure. What a huge moment that would be. Okay. Like, that would be such a powerful moment. And then have Williams finally look over at Leith, who's been there the whole time, and be like, what do you fucking know, dude? What's going on? What are we doing? Exactly. And instead, it's just they kill Williams because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Ugh. And then how they kill him. Ugh. Bottom line, William should have been fighting the bad guys at the end of the it's, fucking movie. It definitely shouldn't have been Williams because his character was way better. Way fucking better. Yeah. We now talk about Arpons, random people of note. We have Anna Capri as Tanya, our main love interest with Roper. She had a mini run in the 70s with the Brotherhood of Satan and the original Piranha from 1972. She wanted Ooh. to film a movie outside LA, and when her agent called her about the movie, she hopped on a plane that night to Hong Kong. Cool. So there you go. Nice. We have Qian Shi playing Han. We talked about that he was a longtime Chinese actor, friend of Bruce's father, so basically a family friend. That's cool. And nice. they both worked in the Cantonese opera. He referred to Bruce personally as nephew, and Bruce referred to him as uncle. Aww. That's how close they were. Oh, that's so sweet. sweet. Now, it's going to get a little sad and a little spooky. Don't do this to me, David. <laughs> During a break, Bruce had a premonition and told Kien, Uncle, I feel that you will live longer than me. Aww. Kien was surprised and replied, Nephew, don't force yourself too hard. You are overworking yourself. And of course, Bruce passed away shortly before the release of the film. Do we know what he passed away from? It has always been a mystery. The official cause of death from a lot of sources said that it was barbiturates. And it's possible that he was using certain things to try to take the edge off, Mm -hmm. but his family vehemently denied this, saying he had never done anything like that. Mm -hmm. And pretty much the wide speculation was just he was so stressed and felt like he was under so much pressure that something came about because I believe it was heart related. It's probably a heart attack brought on in part by stress and then any. Yeah. Robert Wall playing O'Hara. This is the long-haired white dude who's like okay. Hans Henchman. He is a longtime martial artist who worked on several of Bruce Lee's films and then worked a ton with Chuck Norris later in his career. Oh, okay. He is still making movies and doing martial arts. Okay. So he is a big deal within that community. Angela Mao playing Su Lin, which is Lee's sister. Uh, she's a mainstay of Raymond Chow films in China. Huge Chinese and Hong Kong actress. She is appearing here as a special guest star credit. Okay, guest star. It's kind of cool. It was, it, okay, okay, how can you be a guest star in a movie? I think the idea is she is such a big name, mm-hmm. but not in America 
So the idea of the credit is to specifically stand her credit out. No, that that's the and credit or the with credit. I don't know. I don't know. An attempt was made. An attempt was made. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's it's a fair. it's a very long special guest star title. So dumb. AJ, you're our special guest star this week. Yay! Special guest star. Yeah. We have Jeffrey Weeks playing Braithwaite, the UK counterpart who is bringing Lee in. Okay. He was a longtime radio host for Radio Radio 3 and Hong Kong Television. This is one of two film roles he ever did. He passed away shortly after filming. But he was like a longtime Hong Kong radio guy. Okay. Because Hong Kong was a UK colony for a long time. Uh, Okay. So, Uh, yeah. yeah. We have Bolo Young. (laughs) Bolo. Bolo. Playing Bolo. He is credited in this film as Yang Ze. We've, of course, talked about him in Bloodsport. He is a legendary martial arts actor. This role is credited for his name change. He changed his name to Bolo Young because his character was Bolo in this film. And it was such a calling card. Uh, That makes sense. I love that. Yeah. Bolo. He's great. And oh my... We see Bruce, and then you see Bolo, and you're like, Bolo looks like a slab of meat. Yeah. Like, it is insane how jacked that guy is. Mm -hmm. He looks like fucking Schwarzenegger. He looks like what you imagine a minotaur to be. It's... Like, he's just like, like, like like one of those blow-up muscle suits. It's, yeah, it's like he's got that inside, and he can't keep it all together. Like, it was just like... What the hell, man? Are you able to scratch your nose? Like it's just it's so much. It is bonkers. I love that visual, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for giving me that. You're welcome. <laughs> we have Marlene Clark playing Roper's secretary. She's got a cameo here, but she is a black exploitation and black horror legend. She appears in the Switchblade Sisters. In the classic Ganja and Hess. Ganja and Hess. Cool. That is a black vampire mm-hmm. film. That is widely regarded to be one of the lower budget black horror movies that is also incredibly powerful and interesting. Hmm. And Pat E. Johnson plays a hood. He is a longtime stunt choreographer and is the referee in the first three Karate Kid films. Ooh. Okay. We have Linda Lee Caldwell playing a party guest. This was Bruce Lee's then wife. Uh, she shows up oh, nice. in a purple dress at Han's banquet. Oh, okay. oh I, I think I saw her. Yeah. I think. We have Jackie Chan in three different appearances in this film. Yeah. He's in there. What? Yeah. He's in yes. There. I didn't even see. Yeah. He's in there. You have to really, really look for him. In the scene with Su Lin being attacked, he gets kneed in the groin. Mm-hmm. Oh. He gets grabbed by the hair right before Lee breaks his neck. When they zoom in on Bruce's face and then you hear the crack neck, that's Jackie Chan. And then he is one of the stuntmen hit when Lee has his two sticks before he gets the nunchucks. Ah. In fact, Bruce actually hit him in the face with one of those sticks, according to Jackie. (laughs) And apparently he immediately apologized and insisted that Jackie could work on any Bruce Lee movie after that. I, I'll, I'll hire you sight unseen. No, and then sweet. Bruce died before being able to fulfill that promise to Jackie Chan. It's a very sweet promise. Mm-hmm. We have Roy Chow as the Shaolin Abbot. He is also credited as special guest star. He is another famous Hong Kong actor. He played Tanaka in Bloodsport. 
So that is the guy who trains oh. Jean-Claude Van Damme oh, yeah. when he's fake being a kid. God, that's one of the worst scenes in that entire oh, that movie. When awful. Jean-Claude Van Damme has okay. to play a teenager. I'm not going to relitigate Bloodsport. That movie is awesome. <laughs> Shut, up. Shut up. That movie slaps. There's so many great points, but that is the most like, what the fuck are we doing? Shut up. They couldn't find a good location for Han's Island. So Chow, who could fly a small plane and knew where you could fly without needing permission from mainland China, mm-hmm. flew producer Paul M. Heller with the doors off of his plane so they could scout locations. That's cool. Heller took photos of the islands and the mansions, and then they recreated Han's Island visually with composite photographs. That's awesome. <laughs> That's badass. That's really cool. But I, you said the doors of the plane were open? Off. They took them off the plane. They were flying low. That still sounds very dangerous. Yes, yes it's incredibly dangerous. It's but it's 1973, and you have no money. And no seatbelts. And probably significant amounts of drugs. And a bungee cord and a dream. <laughs> a bungee cord and a dream. I'm going to say that all the time to you, AJ. We got a bungee cord and a dream. <laughs> what was that? Uh. Robert Klaus, the director, appears as a thug. Oh, okay, that's cool. In the film. All right. And Samo Kambo Hung plays the Shaolin fighter at the beginning of this movie. Samo, along with Biao Yuan and Jackie Chan, were members of the Seven Little Fortunes at the Peking Opera School. That is the group of students that is considered the best of the best, and they all train together and showcased their talents throughout Western audiences. Hmm. Samo did a whole string of movies in Hong Kong as well, like Jackie Chan did. Jackie's just had a lot longer longevity by moving into America. But Samo is a contemporary of him. The success of this movie was likely part of what helped them get a ton of work with Golden Harvest and then build their own careers. Oh, okay. Nice. That's, That's one big thing from this movie. This spurred on a huge growth in Hong Kong cinema because of how successful it was in America and and with Western audiences. All right, trivia. 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 An extra challenged Bruce Lee to a fight to see if he was really that good. Oh, no. Bruce easily won the fight and sent the extra back to work. All right. When he was put into an arm bar during a sparring session, his opponent asked, how would you get out? Bruce's response was, why'd bite your leg, of course. Roper then does this exact move, fighting with Bolo. I like that. Mm. The production had issues finding actresses to portray sex workers, so they hired actual sex workers to play those roles. Nice. Oh, hell yeah. And likewise, all of the street extras were people on the Hong Kong streets. That's awesome. Yep. 8,000 mirrors were used in the Hall of Mirrors duel. Shit. That's too many mirrors. (laughs) I don't need to see myself from that many angles ever. To break the mirrors in the final sequence, Bruce held a small piece of iron in his hand so that it wouldn't hurt so much smashing into them. There was weight and momentum behind it that he could just sort of tap it. Not so much force. And he didn't have to force it. Sure. And it was inspired by a restaurant in Hong Kong that all the producers ate at. That's cool. There were mirrors all around and they Mm. went, why don't we do that for the scene? That's amazing. (laughs) The fighting was grueling and complicated. They had to shoot some as many as 20 different times, and they shot almost all the fight sequences in eight days. What? John Saxon, after three days, was like, I'm going to die. Like, I cannot keep up with y'all. 
And I get it. Like, it's like you did all of this nonstop in eight days before setting up the rest of the movie. That's bonkers. You could barely keep up and you thought you were the star, honey. Yeah. (laughs) On set, fights would break out between stuntmen and extras that had been hired from rival triad families, the major Chinese organized crime syndicates. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. That's uh, unfortunate. Yeah. It's always a recipe for issues. Uh, Great. People, do your homework. In the cave fight scene, Lee defeats 51 opponents. Of course he does. I did count all the people that came out of the, uh, <laughs> like, when the elevator scene, while he was waiting for the elevator, I did count how many people came to him before the elevator came down, because I wanted to be like, have you ever waited for, like, literally 12 people to come fight you in front of an elevator, only for, like, 15 to come out of, of the course. elevator? You gotta know. You have to keep track. You have to keep track. Uh... On set, Bruce offered $100 to anyone that could catch his hand before they got jabbed. He never paid a dime. <laughs> Fight! <laughs> when Lee talks about his fighting style and then yeets Parsons, the Australian jackass, into a dinghy, um, that is actually based on a famous story about 16th century samurai Sukuhara Bokuden. Guy says, what's your fighting style? The mantises that fight in the film were flown in from Hawaii. And they refused to fight when they arrived on set. Good, because that's like insect cruelty. It's a little weird. I don't think they like particularly like fight each other for fun. That's fucked up. The crew also had a very difficult time getting the cat to sit still on the guillotine. Yeah, because it's (laughs) fucked up. I would suspect fucking so. Like. (sighs) Look, I'm glad it ended okay and that Roper gets that one like kind of nice moment of yanking the cat back being like uh uh-uh, uh no 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 like i am a jackass but this is just awful ooh the film's soundtrack was actually a runaway success it earned a gold record selling 500,000 copies wow hey i didn't really notice the music enough to it's just a very 70s score it's definitely 70s yeah. but i didn't notice anything special about it no it's it's just more composed than most movies at that time because lalo Schifrin, who previously did the music for our movie cool hand luke knows how to like very much compose something themey and significant and catchy and finally mortal Kombat heavily heavily draws from this film no shit Liu kang is a benevolent shaolin monk fighting shirtless in black kung fu pants shang sung the person who holds the island tournament with a darker purpose in mind, is a mystical turn on Han's character. Mortal Kombat is Enter the Dragon. Are you sure about that? (laughs) (laughs) Because this movie is good, and that movie is not. Oh, I'm talking about the game. Like, the game itself is based on this movie. No, that's fine. And the premise. That's fine. There are so many things based on this movie. Which I'm so glad I've finally seen this movie. I am as well. And that leads us to our ratings. On every episode of Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, we come up with a rating system specific to this movie. What is going to be our rating system? Is it going to be mirrors? We can't do mirrors because it's, then it's going to be a number out of 8,000. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I think dragons is good. Or no, cobras. Oh, cobras. Cobras. Yes. Cobras. All right. How many cobras are we going to give this film? Since I've technically seen it before, I have to go first. Yes. I'm going to go three and a half cobras. Mm. 
it's a great movie, but it's really fucking racist. And Roper fucking sucks. And the <laughs> writing, the writing is not great, but directing's fabulous. Bruce Lee is amazing. Jim Kelly is amazing. So like I I like all those elements and I wanted more of them. So three and a half. Three and a half cobras. All right. AJ, what are you gonna give this movie? I'm gonna give it a solid three cobras. You know, I I feel like it's a movie that I would watch a couple more times. It's not something that I would I would probably rent it again. I maybe wouldn't like do a full purchase because I don't think I would watch it that many times. Mm-hmm. Fair. I'm gonna go four. No, oh, okay. All right. There are problems for sure. But something that gets me, especially learning all this stuff about it, is how influential this movie is, how much they pulled off with so little. Even with all of those problems, Bruce is so compelling and interesting to me. And all this movie does is make me want to watch it again and all of his movies. It yeah. makes me want to watch those five movies mm-hmm. to get That's fair. all of the different stories that he was able to tell while he was around. Sure. With all of that and how significant and influential this movie is, you see it in so many things. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that not only do I want to revisit, but I feel like I'm going to wind up liking even more the more I watch it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to give it a four. I'm going to give it four Cobras. And that is Enter the Dragon. Yeah. Do, do we exit the dragon now? Never. No. Never. All right, AJ, thank you so much for being here to talk Enter the Dragon with us. Thank you guys for having me. I had so much fun with this. Yay! All right, if people want more AJ, where can they find more AJ? They can check me out at Straight Off the Top of My Headlines, which is a podcast I do with my buddy Aiden Kinsella, where we take real-life headlines and turn them into not-real-news stories. It's very good. It's very fun, and there may have been one person on this podcast who was guested on it. What? It was David. You can also catch me on a podcast called Shattered Worlds RPG, which is a tabletop RPG uh, action play game that I play with my friend Jeff Richardson. I play that with him and a few other people. It is so much fun. I am also going to be on Christmas Tide Ohio, which I am on with another person who is currently on this podcast right now. It's me. (laughs) And that is actually out now. The first two episodes are out. So oh my like, god, yes. This is in the future. This is in the future space. Yes, that that is on the Twitters and all of the podcatchers. In which case, I'm very excited that it's out. Yay! Me too. And then one final thing, the Connecticut Gaiman's Chorus. I am part of that, and we are trying to do more things on social networking and whatnot. So you can go ahead and search for us on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube. We're going to be putting out a lot more content. Yay! They're awesome and amazing and lovely. Yes, go hear AJ sing. Yeah. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Thank you again for being with us. And of course, we can't wait to have you back another time. And until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.